in my first year of seminary, uh, some friends and I went and saw the touring company of Les Miserables. And I got to tell you, it was an amazing experience. I can't, I don't remember who I went with, but not, not entirely. But I do know that it had an immediate impact on me. I went out and bought the CDs of the, uh, of the musical, the Broadway musical. The songs are amazing, but the story is better. And Hugo's novel opens in 1815 in, in France. And the French Revolution and the reign of Napoleon are in the past. And Louis XVIII is newly on the throne. And poverty is everywhere in France. And I got to tell you, um, French novels, and Hugo is no exception, are long and winding. And um, I tried to read his other novel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and um, it about killed me. Because it just, like, it's not like novels we, we think of today. But the, the musical distills the story, right? And it's primarily the story of two men. Jean Valjean, prisoner 24601, and Inspector Javert, who is chasing him. It is a story at its core of grace and redemption. A criminal haunted by his past and offered an amazing act of grace by a bishop who he was going to steal from. It is the story of Valjean who, after that act of grace, hides who he is and saves an orphaned girl of a dying prostitute, raising her as his own daughter. And throughout, he's pursued by Inspector Javert over the years, who is a man driven to fulfill the letter of the law, quite probably as a reaction to his own birth and family, who were anything but law-abiding. And Valjean is both shown grace and shows grace repeatedly through the story, including during a student uprising near the end that happens historically, in about 1832. And Javert was captured as a spy. And they're going to execute him. And Valjean is there to save the, the life of the, the man his adopted daughter loves. And he says, I will do it. I will execute this man. Of course, that's not what he does. He sets him free. And Valjean has absorbed that grace that he was shown and he exhibits it to others and those in need, including the man who would send him back to prison. And that grace shakes Javert to his core. It's a grace that he, the man consumed by the law, cannot accept. And he's so conflicted about it that he ends up committing suicide throwing himself into the Seine River. I know I got the pronunciation wrong. My wife could tell me how I'm supposed to pronounce it. But one could argue that Hugo's story in Les Miserables is the story of the two brothers in the parable of the prodigal son writ large. And I mean large. He, um, 
Hugo didn't seem to believe in short stories. Uh, he wrote very, very long stories. And as we come to this conclusion of our series on Lost, we get the rest of the story. The surprising conclusion that makes us ask ourselves, what does it mean to be lost? We've seen last week, Pastor Jeremy talked about the first half of the story, right? If you will, the Valjean part of the story. The story of what we normally talk about as the prodigal son. And we know that story well of sin and its inability to satisfy. The younger brother who wants his inheritance and doesn't want to wait for dad to die, essentially. And, and dad gives the son his inheritance and he promptly takes off to live in the far country and money runs out and famine and this Jewish boy ends up in the decidedly unkosher job of feeding pigs, thinking he want, might want to eat what they're eating. And finally he comes to his senses and returns home to work for his father as a hired hand and his father's been looking for him the entire time. And he restores him before he can even confess his repentance. And it's an amazing picture of God's grace. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today. What happens next? I will add very quickly that I am very indebted in my study of this to this small book by Tim Keller called The Prodigal God, which is all about this parable. You can read it in an afternoon and I highly, highly, highly re recommend it. It is amazing. But that's where we're at today as we turn to Luke 15 and starting with verse 12. And the, the brother has just uh, come home. Uh, excuse me, not 12. Um, Verse 22, that would be why. Um, so we're, we're getting the last little bit of this, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And so that's what happens. And immediately... We get this. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field. And when he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, was, he has come back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Pray with me, please. 
Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your son who came on our behalf and who teaches us how we are to live in this world. And I pray that as we conclude this series on what it means to be lost, that we would see a little more clearly who you are and who we are and how we are to live in light of that. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, Victor Hugo may have been one of the most celebrated French novelists of all time, but I don't think he has anything on Jesus in his parables. And in this, we see Jesus as a master storyteller. And I want to start here because this may sound like a trivial point to you. It, it's easy to, to miss this point, but given what we're dealing with here and who Jesus is, I think this is crucial. Jesus tells stories for a reason. Stories are where and how we live our lives. We immediately and almost intuitively understand things that we are told and taught in a story that takes a lot longer if we're doing it in other ways. If you think about your best teachers, stories helped them convey what they were trying to teach. We pay attention better to stories. We make connections. And Jesus is a master at this. And this story, the story of the prodigals, the lost sons, tells the story of the gospel in a nutshell. It challenges us. It reminds us of our place in what the Father has done for us. And think about the best stories that you've read or maybe watched. What does the author or storyteller do? I think there are three things that you see. First is, they never forget who their audience is. Remember back in verses 1 and 2 when this series started. Who is Jesus talking to? There's two groups. The tax collectors and the sinners have gathered together to hear Jesus. But it's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are complaining. And who Jesus is speaking to. This man Welcome sinners and eat with them, he'd say. And then, in verse 3, Jesus starts telling parables that talk all about being lost. The wanderer, the wandering sheep, the overlooked with the coin, and the rebel. And as we just read, there's a fourth lost person. And Jesus is speaking to both audiences at once, and he's never lost sight of this. He's speaking to the sinners and the saints, as it were, the irreligious and the religious. And most directly, Jesus was speaking to the church folk, the ones whose theology is pretty right, who are zealous for the law, who want the kingdom of God to come. He's also speaking in a way that those listening in this tax collectors and the sinners can hear. The tax collectors have substituted God's kingdom for the Roman kingdom. They work for them. And the sinners have abandoned God's kingdom altogether to live for themselves. And all of these groups are hearing what they need because Jesus came to rescue the lost. He knows who is lost even when they don't know that they're lost. And he tells stories to help them see. And I believe Jesus is the master storyteller who tells the story of the gospel in a way 
that makes sense to the audience who's there. And it makes me ask the question, as a Christian today in the 21st century, am I telling God's story in a way that the people I'm talking to can understand? That they could even see. Are we just telling that story in a way that makes us comfortable? Jesus, I believe, if he was explaining the gospel to the angels, he would have done it differently. If he was speaking to the Forum at Rome or the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens, he probably would have spoken a lot more like Paul. But he didn't. And Jesus says that the heart of God's story is simple. Follow me. Love God and love others. And we don't really love others well if we are not telling the story of Jesus in a way that people can understand. But the second thing that Jesus does is a master storyteller. First, he remembers his audience, and second, he flips the script. And the best dramas always have a hard turn that you don't see coming. My wife and I have a bit of a, of a contest when we watch crime shows on TV. We like, we, we're always saying early on, okay, who did it? Who of the people that's there, who did it, right? Who can predict who's coming? And all too often, one of the two of us is able to say, well, that you could see coming a mile away, right? But the best ones, though, catch you off guard. I think the best example of this was the movie by M. Night Shyamalan, The Sixth Sense, the little kid, I See Dead People. And if you have ever watched the movie, you find at the end that there is a very wild twist. And once you look back at it, you're like, how did I not see that coming? But I totally didn't. And I won't spoil it for you if you haven't seen it. It blows your mind. And I'm talking about it years later. And that's what Jesus does here in this story. Because we've heard this story over and over again, right? In Sunday school and in sermons, and it becomes familiar this story of the prodigal son. But it was anything but familiar in Jesus' day because he flips the script. And I think Jesus' audience would have heard echoes of Old Testament stories about brothers, maybe Cain and Abel. And in that story, Cain is clearly wrong and Abel is clearly right. Perhaps, as the story began, that's what everyone expected. Bad is bad and good is good. And given the previous two parables, we might have expected Jesus' parable to end there at verse 22. But he doesn't. See, the story continues as we've seen. And the good son, the older brother, we find out is every bit as bad, every bit as lost as the bad son. And the script is flipped and everyone is blown away. Tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes alike. But it's not just flipping the script that does that. Because Jesus ends the story with a cliffhanger. This past week, television shows started up again their fall season. Shows where last spring our heroes were in danger... And you had to wait all summer long to find out what happened next. I gotta be honest. I take a certain amount of glee in watching my daughter squirm at the end of a series 
uh, at, in the spring. Because she's like, no, you can't do that to me. I got to know what's going on, right? And I sort of grin and say, well, you've got to wait. And what is that a sign of? It's a sign of a master storyteller who knows how to get at their audience. And it keeps you asking and wondering and wanting more. And in our story today, Jesus does the same thing. But there's no verse 33. There is no answer. This is a cliffhanger. We don't know what the older brother does. Does he swallow his pride? Does he stay outside? What does he do? Jesus doesn't care about the next season. He leaves it that way. He doesn't care about advertisers or market share. He wants his audience to ask himself some questions. To internalize what he's teaching. Who is lost? What does it mean to be lost? What matters to me? Am I the younger brother or the older brother in the story? The lost son, the prodigal, or am I the other lost brother? Because Jesus' story is actually pretty clear. That there's not one lost brother in this story, there's two. And many times we identify ourselves with the younger brother. We've repented and come to the Father and He's offered us grace and restored our inheritance. But often we are actually the older brother. In fact, I would argue that in churches in the United States today, at this hour, who are gathered across the country, mostly we are filled with older brothers. I know that's who I tend to be. That's who I am. Literally, I am the oldest brother of four. And figuratively, that is often my personality. I have two younger brothers and a younger sister. I am, by nature, a pretty conservative, follow-the-rules sort of a guy. That's who I am. I am more than a little frustrated when I perceive injustice or unfairness. If there is a standard that is accepted, and it's not simply arbitrary, I want it to be upheld, and I want everyone to abide by it. I hate, and I really mean hate, double standards. They drive me crazy. There is a novelist, Michael Conley, he wrote a series of detective novels set in Los Angeles with Detective Harry Bosch, and he has a phrase, everybody counts or nobody counts. And I like that. I get it. If there's a standard, it should be there. And as we think about it, I want us to put ourselves a little bit in the place of the older brother, even if that's not naturally what you think. And I, I want us to realize that the older brother was a good guy. And everybody, not just the Pharisees, would have understood that the older brother was a good guy. Especially when compared to his younger brother. He's the one that moms would have wanted their daughters to date and marry and the one that the dads would have wanted to have as a son-in-law. He works hard, upholds community standards, he takes on the extra load when his self-absorbed younger brother does the unthinkable and tells his father to just die already so he can have his money and takes off. And Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, argues that these two brothers 
Jesus uses them as to represent the two basic ways that people try to find happiness and fulfillment. There's the way of moral conformity and the way of self-discovery. And clearly, the younger brother is the example of the illustration of self-discovery and the older brother of moral conformity. He's the upright one, right? He's the one that the Pharisees were like, and honestly, like a lot of us. And Keller says that the, the, the elder brother in the parable illustrates the way of moral conformity. The Pharisees of Jesus' day believed that while they were the, a people chosen by God, they could only maintain their place in his blessing and receive final salvation through strict obedience to the Bible. There are innumerable vari varieties of this paradigm, but they all believe in putting the will of God and the standards of the community ahead of the individual fulfillment. In this view, we only attain happiness in a, and a world made right by achieving moral rectitude, moral rightness. We may fail at times, of course, but then we will be judged by how abject and intense our regret is. In this view, even our, in our failures, we must always measure up. And that is the way that most of us tend to look at it, right? We've got to measure up. And the older brother's own words, and the words of the father in verses 29 and 31, make it pretty clear that he's been diligent in living up to his duties, up to the standards, in doing the right thing. He is not a sinner like his younger brother. He does the right thing because that's what you do. Except, his response is pretty revealing, isn't it? He's not a happy man when he finds out that his brother is back in verse 28. Becomes angry and refuses to go in. And think about it. He's in the fields working, probably some distance away. He finally makes it home in the evening, and he sees a, there's a party going on. What gives? Why didn't anyone think to let me know that there's a party going on? Last to know again, what's going on? And so he grabs the servant to find out why. And what happens? Immediately, anger, resentment, pretty much from the second he finds out what's going on. And it gets worse, because we can feel the hurt pride here. There's certainly no joy going on. He won't go in to the party. He's incensed that his father would lower himself to let this obvious problem child back. And to be perfectly honest, I understand his response. I would be more than tempted to react exactly the same way. Now, I haven't had to. My brothers and sisters are not wayward children like his younger brother. But I get the impulse, because it feels like he's upholding justice and honor, like he's defending his father's honor from a really terrible insult and all of the community standards. Except that he's rather like Javert when confronted with grace. He can't understand it. I've slaved for you. You wouldn't even give me a goat to have a small party with my friends. And you do this? And then there's something else that we, I think, miss. He's just insulted his father every bit as much as his younger brother did. He makes his father come out to him. His father, 
who is hosting a party. He defies the will and the judgment of his father. And he says, in effect, I know better than you, dad. And he's playing you, and I, if you won't stand up for it, for yourself, I will. Look at what he did. And what the older brother just did in his culture would have been every bit as insulting as what his younger brother did. He just called out his father publicly. The older brother is a good guy, the dutiful son who just revealed that he is every bit as lost as his younger brother. And he clearly believes that the father is being unfair, that he is not living up to what he should do. And I'm rather reminded of the parable of the talents or the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, where Jesus talks about the owner paying workers to come and he pays the people who come first thing in the morning and the last thing at the end of the day, the same amount. And the people who got there in the morning are like, what gives? What are you doing? You're, how can you do this? And the vineyard owner says, hold on, we had an agreement. I lived up to the agreement. And you're mad because I'm being generous. And we can get angry with God and with our wayward brothers and sisters because we think somehow God is being unfair. But Keller relates a story about a woman who grew up in the church. She grew up in a church that told her that God only accepts us when we are good, when we measure up. And she hears from going to uh, Redeemer in, in New York City of the grace of God. And that God would accept us no matter what because of what Christ has done. And her response is amazing. It is profound. And it helps us to see that our unfair claims are, are not so realistic, not so on the ball. After hearing about grace, she said, that is a scary idea. Oh, it's good scary, but it's scary. I was intrigued. This is Keller. I asked her, what was so scary about unmerited free grace? She replied something like this. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. She could see immediately that the wonderful beyond belief teaching of salvation by sheer grace had two edges to it. On the one hand, it cut away slavish fear. God loves us freely despite our flaws and failures. Yet she also knew that if Jesus really had done this for her, she was not her own and she was bought with a price. And I think that that is pretty amazing. She got the idea that whatever God does after what he has done for us, he is certainly not unfair. And the older brother should have followed his father's lead. He should have shown grace. He should have shown forgiveness and restoration. And he, he talks about this son of yours, not my brother. And he talks about all that he's done for his father. But 
Jacob from the Plano campus pointed out in our preaching meeting that it had nothing to do, his inheritance had nothing to do with what he had done. It had to do, he gets the double portion because he was born first and a male. That's why. Not because of what he had done. And he should have shown grace and he should have known better. But why does this older brother do what he does? Motivation matters. Maybe he's the kind of person who does the right thing because it's the right thing. And maybe he does it because you do the right thing because of what it does for you. And I think that those two things are not as far apart as we think. A lot of people do right because it's the law. And the law stands over and against all of us. And they do the right thing even if it hurts out of duty, out of fatalism, not to delight God, not even because it reflects a heart for God. They do it because they want to be on the right side. And if they want any kind of reward, then, well, I have to follow the law. I follow the law. I do what's right because the law is there and the law is my only way forward. And I think the older brother's response reveals his heart. The actions of both brothers reveal that they don't love the father, they love the father's stuff. What he can offer them. And the younger brother wanted his portion, and when the father restores him, the older brother does the math. Hey, if he's restored to his inheritance, that means I get less. My inheritance just got reduced. And the younger brother repents, and the tax collectors and the sinners can see themselves here in him, and that there is hope for us. And we can be reconciled to the Father by confessing, by turning away. And the Pharisees, well, I think Jesus is showing them their blindness. The older brother doesn't even see that he has a problem. He doesn't understand that he too is lost until his brother comes home and he is confronted with that grace and his father comes to him. Because that's when his true feelings come out, when his motivations are revealed. Keller says, pride in his good deeds rather than remorse over his bad deeds was keeping the older son from the feast of salvation. His spiritual problem is the radical insecurity that comes from basing his self-image on achievements and performance. So he must endlessly prop up his sense of righteousness by putting others down and finding fault. What must we do then to be saved? To find God, we must repent of the things we have done wrong but if that's all you do, you may just remain an older brother. To truly become Christians, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians repent for the very roots of their righteousness too. We must learn how to repent of the sin under all our sins and under all our righteousness, the sin of seeking to be our own Savior and Lord. We must admit that we put our ultimate hope and trust in things other than God and that in both our wrongdoings and our right doings, we have been seeking to get around God or control God in order to get a hold of those things. And that, to me, is very convicting. 
But thankfully, God has provided a better brother in Jesus. In Hebrews 2.11, we're told that Jesus sanctifies us. And that we are his family. That he is not ashamed to call his brothers and sisters. In Romans 8.29, Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. And maybe more shockingly, in Mark 3, early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus' brothers and sisters and his mom come because he's starting to teach. And he's making his family nervous about the claims that he's making. And they're trying to grab him and pull him into that. Quiet down now, please. Would you come along and stop doing this? And Jesus says, no. And he says that the people who follow him, the people who do God's will, are his brothers and sisters. And Jesus' parable, all of these parables really about the lost, reinforce that he is the older brother who reaches out to all of us to reconcile us to the Father. He does what the older brother in this parable should have done. He should have been the bridge to the Father. He should have been the one to bring his younger brother back. And yes, it would have cost him. It cost Jesus everything. As the second person of the Trinity, Jesus becomes one of us, suffers as one of us. This is the depth that we see in Philippians 2, what's known as the Christ hymn, about what Jesus did on our behalf, who lowers himself to become one of us and suffer on our behalf. That is the depth of what Jesus does in order to bring all of us who are lost back to the Father. Because the Father is the main character. And it's easy to miss this. We focus on the sons, whether the prodigal or the older brother. But it is all about the Father. Because there's always a return to something in these stories, a return to God. And that's the point Jesus is making. He is the, the Father is the constant in this story. His character remains the same in both sons. His desire is the same, and He is the one that holds the place of honor. Both sons are living their lives in relation to the Father, whether they do wrong or right, and He is the standard. And so it's a story about the Father and how all of us relate to Him. Notice that it's the Father who bears the cost. We saw last week, the Father suffers the indignity of his rebellious son. For the moment he leaves, well, the moment he asks and then leaves, even up to running to greet his son and then throwing a party. And that's the source of tension this week. And some people think this parable shows that there is no cost to God in forgiveness. And that is just not true. It misses the point. There's at least three different ways that this parable shows a cost. The father waits for the younger son and goes out to the older son. They're a similar cost. The cost of not chasing after one son and confronting the other is a cost that a parent pays to reconcile their child to themselves. And knowing which approach is the right one is the hard part. Which approach will get to the heart of the matter? Different children need to be treated differently because they're not the same. And it costs a parent when their child is far from them to process that reconciliation, to wait for the one or to confront the other. Second, the father bears the indignity, the shame of both boys, what they brought to him. And we don't think about that much today in our society, but this is an honor and shame culture in first century Palestine and a huge, huge deal. There's a social cost. There's also a financial cost, third. 
because the farm's smaller than it was after the first son goes away and takes his inheritance. That means it's not as prosperous. It costs materially. And here's the thing. We think in terms of cost because that's the capitalist society we live in. But that's not the math that, if you will, that Jesus is doing here in this story. Today we celebrated communion. And there is a reason why communion is such a central part of the Christian identity and faith. And the Father offers true communion. And there is a danger of thinking nothing that we do really matters. If the, son, the younger brother was wrong and the older brother was wrong, do whatever you want because there's nothing we can do. And that misses the point. That's not what grace is about. Grace offers connection with God, but as we saw last week, it requires repentance. And communion is a celebration. A celebration of the new covenant that Christ offers, reconciling us to the Father. And we approach it with reverence. But it's, it's not about the way, the form. It is about reconciling us to the Father. The point of communion is who we're reconciled to. And Jesus challenges the sinners and the saints in this parable. Sin is real. It separates us from God. And the Father does not excuse the younger brother. He pardons him. And when he returns, and as he repents, and the Father offers True communion to the lost older brother too. You have always been with me. Everything I have is yours. And it's really not hard for us, whether we're younger brothers or older brothers, to say there's something wrong in this world. We're missing something. And I have said before, and I will say it again, we are looking for the more than in life. And St. Augustine says that our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. And I think that the older brother never really trusted the father. He never really trusted that the father loved him for who he was, not what he did. I think that we tend to think of the younger brothers mostly dealing with this, but we all do. We're secretly afraid because we know that we can't measure up. As if God didn't know that we feel this way. But God is the Father who comes out to us, who bears the costs of our separation and the indignity of the, our rebellion, whether it's obvious or insidious. And he takes it on himself. And Jesus shows us in this parable that the Father celebrates all his children. And that's the heart of communion. The heart of the Father. The older brother is incensed. That his father threw a party for the party boy brother, right? And the one who squandered the property and who spent it on prostitutes. And maybe he knows what his younger brother has done and maybe he's guessing, but it doesn't matter because the father tells him, look, everything I have is yours. You get everything as long as you're with me. And we're celebrating because your brother was dead and now he's alive and we have to celebrate that. And it's too easy for us to play the part of the older brother and get in a funk when the other bro younger brother comes home instead of celebrating the return of the lost one. And the father opens the door and says, come to the party. Does the party 
cease if he doesn't participate? No. It's not going to stop the party. And the thing about parties is, they're for everyone. I'm tempted to say, this is not exactly true, but I'm tempted to say that you go to a party and whatever the reason for the party is the excuse for everyone to get together and to have a good time. Overstating it a bit, but the point is the joy of the party. And the father wants to celebrate being with him. And he includes the older brother, or he wants to anyway. And if the older brother comes in, he gets the benefits of the party, even though it's not for him. He gets the food and the dancing and the music and the restored relationships. He gets it all. And Jesus leaves this story unresolved. Will the older brother take the step? And he's asking the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, will you come to the party? You want the kingdom. You say you want the kingdom anyway. So when a sinner comes home, all of these people that are here to listen to me and the, and the reconciliation I am offering, that's what you say you want. Is it really what you want? Celebrate with me. And he's asking us the same question. Do we want to look down on the younger brother? Or do we want to celebrate his return? So I want to conclude with four questions. This is not the typical application, kind of go out and do this sort of conclusion. Because Jesus leaves us on a cliffhanger. And I think these questions are a little bit harder for us because they get to our motivations. It's a heart check. And the first is, which brother are we? I know that I tend to be an older brother. And it's too easy for me to fall into those patterns. And we need to take stock and be honest with ourselves. Are we leading a life of self-discovery or moral conformity? That question matters. We need to know ourselves. The second question is, what does your response reveal about you? What do you think of the younger brother? Of the person who is far from God? Do they make you mad? Do you feel superior? Do you wish they would clean up their act? And when they do, do you look for something else to be offended about? The older brother had issues, clearly. The younger brother just brought them out to the surface. Right? And our response matters. Do the lost people around us, the ones we see on the news or we think about as the culture, do they make us gag? Or do they make us sad? Do you look down on them or ache for them? Because the answer to that is probably an insight into the third question, which is what's your motivation? Is your heart for the Father or for the Father's stuff? Do we follow God because of the promise of heaven or the promise of being with God? It's really easy for us in church, Bible-believing Christians, to say our heart is for the Father, that we want to be with God. But what we really want is God's stuff. Because if we're with the Father, that's scary. Because like that woman that Keller quoted, that means there's nothing he can't ask of us. 
Fine. Are we willing to join the celebration? A different way to ask the question would be to ask it this way. Do we care more about the Father's rules or the people the Father loves? If our motivation's right, we're going to want to be with the Father, which means we enter the party, we love the people that the Father loves. And I'll conclude by reading from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 9. This is an image of the Father. And Isaiah says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers the nations, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That's a party that I want to be a part of. Amen.